Happy Fourth uh, of July, where oh, everything right. is reopen and <laughs> nothing is wrong. She's a grand old flag, ain't she? That was a yeah. holiday still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, they're kinda. doing the big like Blue Angels air show in D.C. and everything. It's oh boy, it's going to be terrifying. Well, I mean, yeah, it's uh, being in the cockpit of an airplane is technically social distance. So <laughs> listen, it's like if we don't have our big boys and big blue planes, like how will we know that, America. that we're Americans anymore? Look, you can't keep people convinced that the coronavirus is still going on unless you drop MK Ultra from the air. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, you got to do the air show. I mean, it's yeah, it, it, it's funny because it, a million years ago, I worked with a guy who uh, was a volunteer at a museum I worked at who had been one of these sort of like uh, Air Force pilots that that like then participates for decades later in like public demonstrations and stuff like that. And Weird. He, he was saying one time that like someone tried to hire him to like do a recreation where he would drop a bunch of tinfoil over some town in Oklahoma. No. Um, what? To, Wait, they to did... stage a reenactment of like a Cold War era apparent um, action that happened where they disrupted a bunch of shit by dropping tinfoil out of the air in Russia. That's like, it, yeah, that's like, <laughs> no, it's like how you how you jam uh like er, how you jammed early radar. Well, that's weird. I, that's weird. I just mean that there's a robust <laughs> industry of like keeping these pilots employed in public demonstrations through, you know, it's yeah. you got to keep the boys working right without our big planes. Where would we be without our shows. Yeah. We love our shows, folks. <laughs> Otherwise, they all just join the Taliban. And <laughs> Vince as counterinsurgency. <laughs> yeah, I mean, United lays you off, and then you're like, "Well, <laughs> got to do this now." Anyway, <laughs> completely makes sense. We don't talk enough about the uh, commercial airline pilot to Saudi jet fighter uh, pilot pipeline. pipeline. <laughs> yeah, or as Vince calls it, the labor market. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a four-point pilot management program oh so yeah. it's uh <laughs> i mean they they offer unions so what like and mckenzie had a great deck about it Death Panel, the official podcast of Goldman Sachs Insights. <laughs> <laughs> Doing it again. Um, you can support the show at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You get two episodes a week and a special discount code on merch just for patrons. Hell yeah. Did you guys see this Nate Silver tweet that was... Uh, Is this the uh, Anik Data tweet? <laughs> yeah. His, throughout oh the crisis, God. he says, there's been evidence that people's behavior is only loosely tied to a state's formal degree of openness. So <laughs> there should perhaps be some more explanations rooted in people thought it was safe slash got bored slash complacent. <laughs> Maybe not as simple as reopen too soon. Ah, yes. American boredom. That's why, that's why our case count and death count is so high. We're just exceptionally bored as a country. Wow. He's just so smart. How did he get so, 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 so smart? My, my prediction is that it's just, we're going to get more special, Nate, special, special, unique takes uh, out of Nate as this crisis goes on. This is breaking him down. 
Look, I mean, this, you is, love this to see is a it. very unique perspective. This is a man so detached from reality that it is almost like fantastical what he well, says now. What I love is that, like, clearly this is definitely like being at home all the time with his art world husband is breaking him. So <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to see what comes next. <laughs> the art world just ruins everyone eventually. Like there's nothing I mean, we can do. Yeah. If like all you, if all you have to do is like sit around your midtown apartment and uh, like order FedExable paintings to your house. Eventually that, that, uh, that gets boring. You know, so what you're yeah, saying, I mean, what you're saying, Vince, is like he wasn't going out that much anyway. So why would he know about the effects of having bars open? So exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I, I think we're seeing a lot of this, like in terms of just uh, people just trying to make general sense of like the reason why the cases are coming back. But just in a way that like would not prove them wrong or their insights from like three, ten, seven days ago wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we're seeing is like the most beautiful display of like privilege, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but it's been kind of amazing to watch people be surprised that the cases are coming back. Like even the coming back thing is right. like part of the bullshit. I don't understand. Like, I don't actually understand. And I'm concerned that there are many people that don't actually understand like how long this is going to be. I know yeah. that's a very simplistic thing to say, but it's, I mean, we hit 50,000 daily cases. Uh, yeah. Like that actually is maybe to, the yeah, most today, uh, right? Yeah. This morning. So. And believe- what was it yesterday? It was like 40, thousand cases that's yeah or possibly the day before we had first hit 40,000 like it's you know Mm -hmm. it's ramping up there's not the fact that um you know people fear mongered a lot about the fact that Fauci went and talked about uh how we could likely hit a hundred thousand daily cases in the like very near future Mm -hmm. um and it's you know that's a pretty (laughs) It's a pretty logical assumption, I would say, you know, yeah. these I mean, trends it, continue. It, as it they makes say. sense, right? If you've got this like repeat rate that is like getting shorter and shorter, we went from like 46 days down to 41 last week. I think we're at 40 days now. This is like, this is how often the infection can double within a community, right? right? Oh, okay. And yeah. so as the, as the repeat rate gets shorter and shorter, right? Of course, we will hit over 100,000 a day at some point if there's mm-hmm. no intervention, because like that's how that's infections how work. That's how right. a virus works. Yeah. You know, well, and considering that, you know, we per at least things that like Jeff Stein has posted on Twitter, any sort of follow up to the CARES Act, any sort of like, you know, the 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 stuff that's being wrangled over with at, at the bare minimum, for example, like extending unemployment insurance or whatever, or in general, just whatever the next federal response is going to be is still supposed to be like weeks away. In right. general, if, if we're so lucky, that, right? Yeah, if we're I lucky, mean, if we're, if we're, lucky, if we're exactly. lucky, they'll take the expiration of the extended unemployment benefits as some sort of sort of Damocles that they have to do <laughs> something <laughs> on. But that's not mm-hmm. that's in no way a guarantee. That makes mm-hmm. me so anxious, to be honest, because it's it's so. It, it's so obvious, right, that that we are prioritizing access over quality in all aspects, right? Both in terms mm-hmm. of like people being able to stay in their homes. There was that I don't know if you guys saw that thread on Twitter that was from a I think a housing court public defender going through a docket of cases of evictions um, somewhere in the Midwest. And it was like case after case after case. And I think documented or 25 evictions in one day, most of them done sort of pro forma tenants, not even there. Half the time the tenants are like, 
unemployed I can't pay the rest of the time it's like they are being evicted for like absolutely nothing like uh, violations of having gifts over and we've seen also uh, people trying to find apartments and they work in the service industry and because they work in the service industry landlords are asking for 12 months of rent up front Jesus Christ. Well, and, and this is you know I, I think that this is my this is really going on everywhere it's certainly going on in Wisconsin and it really puts a lie to the notion that, that persisted, and I think persists for still, that states are playing some sort of leadership role and we should be grateful for these intrepid Democratic governors for <laughs> uh, taking the lead on public health. You can extend an eviction moratorium by executive order. Right. right. Tony Evers in Wisconsin hasn't done that. Pritzker hasn't done that in Illinois. Uh, a number of these sort of so-called um, responsible level-headed Democratic governors have capitulated to the economic powers that be. Um, and then at the same time, you have, you, you know, P90X gym owners suing <laughs> Racine, Wisconsin on constitutional grounds, saying that it, it, it's uh, safer at home order is you know, some violation of our constitutional right to get get jacked um <laughs> you know, just, p90x is not really, that effective of a workout they are really, way overselling themselves wait, a couple things <laughs> one i thought p90x was a home workout number two oh, i don't know maybe it's just like some no, something like whole, that i don't know what a there's like a whole like, is it, no, there's a well, whole there's a whole equipment um line to p90x word, word. Okay, i've worked cool. in a lot of cool, gyms cool, cool. yeah i'm really yeah, uh, yeah it might I'm not even be a p90x gym vince do you think i know anything about gyms I don't know. I mean, but well, really, really what my really what my bigger point is here is that I'm uh, I'm really happy that P90X figured out how to diversify their product line. Um, God, no. What I what I, I mean, the funniest thing, honestly, here is is the brief that hopefully does, in fact, say the right to get jacked. Absolutely. Yes. The Wisconsin uh, State Supreme Court uh, <laughs> yeah. decision that uh, <laughs> declares a constitutional right to get jacked. I mean, uh, after what they did yeah. with the primary shit, like, I wouldn't be surprised at yeah. this point. Well, I mean, they, you know, they called uh, they called the uh, extension of the stay-at-home order uh, in Wisconsin unconstitutional. So, you know, mm -hmm. this is, you know, it's very within the realm of possibility for that mm -hmm. exact uh, outcome. Right that exact burn. outcome. Yeah. But yeah. I think it, it's like, it's telling and interesting how the, you know, we, we, we joked about Goldman Sachs at the beginning, but that Goldman Sachs report about suggesting that we do mandate mask use for everyone, including like, what was it? There's a, didn't you say B, there's like a Morgan Stanley report too, that said like basically the same thing. Um, there's a, also a Morgan Stanley, the Morgan Stanley report that I was talking about does talk about like masks, but more towards like talking about what the new post COVID in investment strategies for diversifying your portfolio oh, oh, are, great, which great. are like absolutely great. fantastic. I can't well, wait to tell you guys about this. Well, but I mean, I, I just, to see this, which the takeaway for me is essentially there's a, there's a broad, coming to consensus over at least mask usage, basically, which it sounds mm -hmm. like to me is, you know, when, when I hear people say like, oh, well, why not just have a mask order instead of like a wear <laughs> mask order as opposed to like yeah. having lockdowns or, or whatever, oh uh, but including like people uh, like Adi Barkin asking on Twitter, like, but, um, you know, but he, he, it's not just uh, him saying that it's people like people we joke about all the time, Matt Iglesias and mm -hmm. Nate Silver being like, why didn't we just do like masks as opposed to doing a lockdown, which to <laughs> me just sounds like they're, they're starting to like rhetorically, the, the ground is being paved uh, for what is clearly actually happening, which is like, we'll just let it rip through 
mm-hmm. the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meantime, people like Goldman Sachs and, uh, you know, uh, Morgan Stanley are releasing these reports promoting mask usage, mostly actually to, you know, they're not like the people on these not white papers, health. right? The people on these white papers are not like epidemiologists. These reports are coming out as recommendations to protect their economic interests. I loved the Goldman right. Sachs one, like also opens with like, we are not public health officials. Our recommendations here are not in the interest of public health. They right. are in the interest of the shareholders of Goldman Sachs Bank, whose right. priority is to continue to make money during coronavirus. <laughs> right. So we're being very clear that this recommendation of masks is based on the idea that if we don't, if too many people die, Goldman Sachs will stop making as much money. Right. Like, well, right. And this is, I mean, the, the thing that I find uh, maybe disturbing most, there are a lot of different things that you could say that are disturbing about this. One is just, as we've talked about before, the complete instrumental instrumentalization of, of, of like public health measures in the service of GDP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think the far more disturbing thing relates to what we talked about with Nathan Tankus on a, one of our recent episodes, which is you have the sort of economist community uh, who says, you know, it's important that we not use the power of government to pick winners or tr- to try to freeze the existing economy in place when we create these recovery policies. At the same time, the only way that Goldman Sachs can conceive of saving something like 5% of GDP is by doing something that would simply project us back into the past with the economy. It's like the economy <laughs> before plus masks. That's all. Yeah. Um, right. Not, not let's, let's use uh, the, the power of like government spending to uh, allow people to create goods that are n- not capable of being produced uh, and that people need because of the pandemic or, or anything like that. But let's just like have masks and then just <laughs> and the then horrible stuff. like rentier like fucking economy <laughs> that we had before. That's yeah. great. We'll just do I that. I mean, well, this reminds me so much of like access to affordable care. Like yeah. it doesn't yeah. <laughs> matter if you can use it as long as you can technically like the economy can technically recover if we just make sure that we have like a way to reopen. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same like bullshit. Absolutely backwards logic. Yeah, I mean, it just it it it's telling, though, because like you think about who's writing, right, those Goldman Sachs reports. And it's like, I'm guessing 30 year old finance bros. And like, no, it's no like, these are like senior people at the bank. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Like, All right. So yeah. 60 year old finance bros. Like, <laughs> I don't I wouldn't yeah. trust those people to imagine a future of anything, let alone what a world or a quote unquote fucking economy is going to look like after coronavirus. And that's why you end up with just, they just look at the world as it is. And then they're like, Hmm, what if I sold this to somebody? Yeah. I was going to say that I can tell you exactly what they imagine as a, as a future, uh, which is line go up. Basically, that's all. Yeah, you know, right. Like, um, and real, for all things, right. including apparently coronavirus. Right. They, yeah. the, they cannot envision a future where the reason for doing something would be that it helps people. Right. No. No. If it doesn't make money, they can't conceive of it. It's just they can't think about like a context where they'd be able to pitch something 
just on the basis <laughs> that it would be good. For reference, uh, Jan Hatzius uh, is 51 years old. So he's a 51-year-old finance bro um, and is the economist of Gold- <laughs> Goldman Sachs. So yeah, this was like the they, they threw some very serious talent behind a very limp, tepid uh, declaration of like masks because we need to keep making money. But, <laughs> but it's also sort of the, I mean... I suppose that at the the heart of these projections is this idea that if more people wear masks and you allow more things to open up because people are wearing masks, that that will somehow be an inducement for more people to consume and so on. But it's not at all clear that from a public health perspective, one, you could ever attach that kind of dollar figure to mask wearing, but also that, that from a public health perspective, that 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 mask policy would be introduced in isolation right. from other policies related to, right. I don't know, closing the fucking bars on mm-hmm. Brady Street in Milwaukee. Like, this is not. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sorry. It's just, I, I, no, it's this okay. is where I live. You know, it's yeah. right out there. And it's, um, you know, it's just like, yeah, when, when, when you're seeing things through this lens, you can only see it as, well, we'll just do this one thing and then the economy will reopen and then we won't have yeah. to do anything else. Right. One weird trick. So like one, one of the things that I think both in this Goldman Sachs study and also in the uh, nearly 90 page report that I read from Morgan Stanley, um, there is this like recurring theme of like, really all we need to do is figure out the right formula for altering consumer behavior and everything will be fine. Right. And it's this sort mm-hmm. of like really, really Nate Silver would love, right? This is the kind of like speculative realism that that gets us in trouble um, and got us in trouble in the financial crisis is the idea of like, really, instead of building a system that's humane, we need to just game it so that it like happens to work out in the way that like, is the least bad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or that so looks the, the least bad. Right, exactly. And so you've got all this whole, like this framing, especially from like a lot of these financial institutions who are, who are pushing ideologically the need to reopen. And also frankly, from like colleges too. um, Cornell looking at you, like oh, yes. the idea of, of like the sort of altering consumer behavior from like a, Oh, we need to make sure that like people are, you know, going and wearing their masks so that they can go to the restaurant instead of like, we want to make sure people have food. It's, it's like right. a weird uh, logic that misses a step that like deals with actual people's lives. Yeah. Just basically figures like these, like bankers uh, or whatever, producing uh, these white papers is what is essentially functionally allowing for creating the space for like, you know, like Republicans to start coming out and say like, everyone should wear masks, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. Because they, because they basically believe that that is their uh, quickest pathway to being able to, you know, just proceed with the recovery and not have to like continue to do any of these measures that they see as like a potentially like toxic socialist takeover or whatever mm-hmm. that adds to like some some like imaginary uh, debt to right like debt like debt mountain or something or like threat like to the, threat to their like necessity within the system too. Well, because I think there's been widespread uh, speculation in like economic circles, I guess that there's like a, a disinflationary effect to to the market and coronavirus but actually like mm-hmm. a study came out i think via bloomberg basically that shows that at least for the bottom 10 percent of income level mm-hmm. actually like the stuff that is people actually purchase 
like within those groups has had uh, inflation happen to it at like 1.5%. Um, yes. Of course. Daily household goods and things like not not like durable yeah. goods like right. Uh, right. not not cars or anything like that, but but the stuff that you need to live every day. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so but this is not an economic indicator that is it seems being taken seriously at all what seems to be taken seriously instead is stuff like this jobs report today which as phil was pointing out on twitter is like a just mm-hmm. a totally lagging indicator basically mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. it's data from when again uh, uh, i think data june from 12th? Yeah, early june when all yeah. of these states right. were sort of reopening and going back to uh quote unquote uh normal so you did have this drop right in the the rate but then if you of course what happens with these things is you know, we only want to report on the one number, even though the report is dozens of pages long. And there are a lot of things that go into that number. So, for example, <laughs> there is a, a component of the unemployment rate, which is just people getting their jobs back because things have sort of temporarily uh, reopened. Uh, but if you get under the hood of of the rate, people who have been put out of a job permanently, that's actually increased yeah. Um, since mm-hmm. uh, since the last month. And we can also see that people who are like marginally attached to the labor force, people who are not in the labor force, who currently want a job that uh, who currently want a job uh, that is has not really changed uh, mm-hmm. from uh, the prior month. So all of this sort of suggests that, yeah, line go up sort <laughs> of. But who knows what line will do? Uh, in the future. Well, and if you want any evidence of that, like the White House has now refused to publish its mid-session review projections of the economy. So there's just a blank page uh, in the report. Nope. Nope. Wow. I just, well, well, but it's, but the story really of this jobs report is line went up because they forced it to and, yes. and line probably going down right now. Um, well, it's like an attraction. Know. You're supposed to have that f- experience of free fall, like a roller coaster. Well, okay, not just, <laughs> but not not just probably. Let's pull from uh, one Nate Silver's book and look at some <laughs> anic data, um, <laughs> like yeah, uh, anecdotal uh, data here. So we we know already, for example, from a lot of uh, reporting that has come out that a lot of people in states who in states that have reopened a lot of people who like were either rehired or went back to work either it's a situation where like obviously in the service industry Mm -hmm. um we know that even if they are back to regular hours their incomes are way slashed because (laughs) if they're if they're tipped employees um demand down um but uh, but for most people who if they have uh you know if they have a job they're like going back at a fraction of the hours that they once had a lot of people also have been re-laid off uh, or, or in cases again, anic data Lee, um, <laughs> have basically been like compelled to quit, uh, because mm-hmm. their hours have been restricted right. and then they quit they can't get, they can't technically get the pandemic unemployment. There are also uh, benefits, uh, like, all of those anic data anecdotes about people who, uh, live with high risk people and are being forced to come back to work. They're concerned about their health or the health of the people that they live with, often in intergenerational households. And then they're told, you can either suck it up and come and risk it, or you can fucking quit. Yeah. Add to that the fact that now, in terms of the amount of people, uh, you know, in terms of, like, federal data, the amount of people who 
are currently employed versus mm-hmm. like the overall population has dropped below 50% for the first time in a while. Wow. Yeah. Um, right. So I think it's also, I mean, these, these indicators matter, but they matter only in so far as they get people who have the power of the state and the fisc of the state to do something about it. (laughs) And the, here are the incentive structures. The white house Republicans do not want to admit that they have failed in managing every aspect of this pandemic. Democrats Mm -hmm. don't want to hand them a, you know, victory or a sort of amelioration prior to the election. Uh, Mm -hmm. They want to run like Nancy Pelosi's strategy here is to run simply on the referendum of the administration's bungling uh, of the pandemic. That is what Joe Biden wants to do uh, as well. Uh, And that's just, uh, you know, it's a risky game. Uh, It's a risky game because this is it's not a world in which people just vote as a referendum party identification matters more than it ever has. So it's, it's kind of an odd, it's, it's a, it's such a gamble uh, for them, but uh, you know, double down. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there is sort of like a a weirdly punitive process that's going on, at least like in Congress right now, which like, especially coming from like statements that you're seeing out of like Chuck Schumer and Pelosi's office, this sort of like, well, you know, just hold on tight because, like, the deal is that, like, you got to wait till November. There's sort of this, like, weird, like, feeling that that from most people that I talk to you also that they, like, actually literally don't expect anything from the government, federal or state anymore between what's been going on with the city budget crises, with what's going on with Medicaid, um, you know, everything people are hearing about their local school districts. Like, I don't, I, I really don't think that the the average person right now expects to receive any assistance going forward. Yeah, I, I, so the question I, I sort of want to ask, uh, if, I, if I could run a survey, is if somebody you knew either got sick or lost their job right now, uh, who would you blame? Right. Or if somebody that you knew infected all of your friends and family, who would you blame? Would you blame mm-hmm. that person? Would you blame their employer? Would you blame, you know, what 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 uh, party in government, if, if any, or government at all? And my sense is that it's it could become increasingly common for people to just um, not know who to blame and point the finger and mm-hmm. whoever is most immediate, including maybe their family and friends. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And just blame them for their sort of moral failings, which, of course, leaves. Or if you're like Nate Silver, blame it on their boredom. Blame it on right. some sort of cultural feature rather than focusing on what we could have done and what we could do. We still could do. As a yeah. right. government. Right. right. We still could do. Right. Uh, there is this sort of fatalism that cultural Totally. criticism uh is is an invitation to i'm not saying that culture doesn't matter obviously but a lot of things matter and if you want to focus on one thing that matters it's the policies that government has to enable people to survive and to not have to like take actions that imperil their lives yeah 
Right. I mean, I just think the fact that, like, even from day one of this crisis, it's been framed as a recovery is telling as to, like, sort of where yeah, the general mindset is. Recovery. Yeah, like, we yeah. never we never had, like, a, a collective moment where the narrative was like, we are in crisis. It was like, mm-hmm. it's coming. Road to recovery. Like, yeah. we, skipped a, <laughs> we skipped a huge step and are pretending that that part is not happening, but it's well, actively been happening for months now. And it's like, it's so it, I mean, immediately after the CARES Act went into effect we had you know we've we've had a a long list of um complaints about it in general but one thing that very very clearly did happen is that in terms of like where people are reporting income from or like where income is coming from right Mm -hmm. um the combination of like the twelve hundred dollar stimulus check and the federal unemployment insurance uh benefit Mm -hmm. boost like did make it so that like the share of collective share of income in terms of like where the sources are coming from, like the, the percentage coming from the federal government, like Mm -hmm. massively increased. You like saw this on reports. Um, and Mm -hmm. that's why, I mean, that's, you know, why this, um, I don't know, like end of July, uh, deadline is so kind of like distressing mm-hmm. basically because if you want mm-hmm. to like we can uh, obviously as we're as we're saying like there's still so much that we could do fundamentally though people are already uh, talking about the about july 31st as the quote like fiscal cliff moment right mm-hmm. there's like a appropriation of, of that term yeah very right. nice <laughs> but yeah it's like an enough of an established understood thing that there will be like a there will be huge immiseration uh Mm -hmm. if that doesn't get extended or improved dare say right and i feel like the inevitability and the futility is sort of like a social function of this like we see this in administrative burdens we see this in the way that uh programs like ssi and ssdi are designed right programs like medicaid are designed like Mm -hmm. you know it's like we design these things because we think that like we have to force people to to recognize the value of it so you can't simply provide people with health care unless they're like being charged a pound of flesh and exchange and like instead of taking that these lessons that we've like learned over decades of like really poorly implemented social welfare programs were just like attempting to apply that same logic to like every other sort of aspect of people's lives at the moment well it's interesting too because the one of the common diagnoses that the international political commentator has now of these things um, the sort of Davos man <laughs> critique, but the, the view Davos from Davos, man. yeah, the, the view from Davos, I guess, uh, is that, you know, you know, what's really back of all of these problems is this just sort of this distrust of experts and this populism. But, you know, the <laughs> irony, the irony is it's the public health experts that frankly know what is to be done mm-hmm. uh, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, they, if you read the, you know, say the American Journal of Public Health, you're going to get a lot of suggestions that are not just, you know, let's wear masks there. Let's make sure that people don't have to go into their, uh, their job that is going to kill them. Um, right. it, you know, let, let's make sure that people are financially uh, secure, Medicare for all and, and so on. It's the people who masquerade as experts. It's Davos man. Uh, <laughs> Goldman Sachs chief economist or or whatever themselves those are the those are the people that are at the root of this uh, because for them it is imperative that people don't trust uh, right. that they're uh, that not merely the, the public health experts but it's it's imperative that people uh, trust only their dependence on 
capital for some subsistence mm-hmm. level of living, or even if you want to go beyond that for, you know, a luxury good of some kind that they might save mm-hmm. up and purchase. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of, that is what, what people are supposed to, that's supposed to be people's North right. star, I guess. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about too, that's like making me anxious is I feel like you've seen in a lot of like on a much smaller scale in a lot of like mutual aid efforts, uh, you have a lot of organizations that are both running out of funds, <laughs> receiving increased demand for, for funding requests And we do know that there is some component of the unemployment insurance money that is being redistributed in communities through like local mutual aid, but, um, they're all, all running out of money already. And we haven't even hit that cliff with it, the benefits ending on July 31st. So I think you have all this like shit going on in housing court. You technically have eviction moratoriums though. If you're just going to get evicted at the end of it anyways, when there's an arbitrary decision as to the pandemic being over, it doesn't really matter if there's an eviction moratorium. And you have all these mutual aid efforts that are keeping people for now sort of ish in place what the fuck is going to happen well this is why i mean i think like we could sit around and like talk about all the shit that is going wrong like individually or like on on a granular level but i think that that question of like ultimately where does the like where does the blame Mm -hmm. start to fall um is like an interesting thing to consider because i know that Mm -hmm. for example when like New York Times did something as simple, for example, as print, like a headline that said resurgence in cases uh, exposes like issues with political leaders, plural (laughs) approach to virus and a whole bunch of uh, like there's a sea of like, you know, donut Twitter or on, you know, the uh, (laughs) what's it called? I guess it's not donut Twitter anymore. It's more like the uh, the little uh, neoliberal globe. Uh, yeah. uh, icon Twitter um, were like freaking out. There was a huge backlash of people basically saying like, what do you mean pl- leaders plural? Like <laughs> it's dangerous to lump Andrew Cuomo with uh, with Trump in in terms of like bad virus response. It's all Trump's fault. And it's like, IDK, no, obviously no, not. It's not. Um, and ultimately it's like if you if you want to be really be uh, <laughs> If you want to be really fair about it, you know, obviously, I think that like the uh, all the Trump administration are essentially the the like cartoonishly, I don't know, bad like stereotypes of like shit of like shitty like post Reagan politicians. Right. But, you know, at the I'm same sorry, time, wait, were you talking about Cuomo? Right. But, <laughs> uh, but like to be like really clear in terms of how deeply like how deep the rot goes and how long and sustained of a, a problem this has been like under Obama when they when they like passed the Affordable Care Act in the first place which maybe this is a good point to transition uh, from but in the first place when they passed the Affordable Care Act uh, there was established a prevention and public health fund mm-hmm. which basically was supposed to put uh, two billion dollars or more annually into the federal budget to support our like completely dilapidated federal and also like state um mm-hmm public health infrastructure and mm-hmm. most of that money would have been so cool if it had actually worked yeah well that didn't happen right. they, they diverted like all of the money into basically financing a payroll tax cut mm-hmm. like yeah mm-hmm. and this all also came came around the time of the fiscal i think it was around the time of that the fiscal cliff debacle mm-hmm. yeah. where you know because in part 
the people who were coordinating all of his action could exist at this level of uh, complete abstraction from the consequences of austerity. The deficit was talked about as if it was a real problem that affected real <laughs> people rather than the fact that uh, when you do all of the things at the very, very high level in the spreadsheets, you don't talk about the fact that you're cutting state and local public health workforces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like uh-huh. th- this is the real problem that affects people. But, uh, you know, fire departments, who gives a shit if you just exist in the deficit <laughs> spreadsheet lands. Well, right. <laughs> and we're seeing this with uh, the um, expand the ACA effort that's coming out now where they're, uh, the Democrats are rolling out really bold proposals to be like, hey, remember mm. when uh, that crappy short-term insurance thing that we still somehow left in the ACA and allowed because we're evil ghouls? Like, remember when Trump extended that to 12 months and made it extra bad? We're going to roll it back to three. Please clap. We thought we thought our bad uh, we thought our bad solution was way right. better. So yeah, we want we want to go back to like our our slightly nicer austerity. It's from the light menu. It's three ninety nine instead of five ninety nine, and it has five hundred less calories. Like it's just absolutely useless junk. Yeah. Really, yeah. I mean the 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 funny thing is that I'm assuming that the reason that they're rolling it back to where it was was because. Uh, it it just so happens that like the timing for those stupid fucking policies happens to benefit like their particular donors a lot better than it benefits Trump's. So I mean, with uh, the with the current what what is the bill? HR fourteen twenty five. Yeah, which has just uh, been been rolled out by the Democrats, which is a uh, I don't know, Phil. Is there a technical term for this? Like a pile of crap or something or <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> i think the technical term for this would have been at one point little uh band-aid or dutch boy finger in the in the tank <laughs> sorry is that a term of art <laughs> no the uh, you know yeah i mean this is this bill the funny thing is this bill was drafted long before uh covid uh yeah. came about this was supposed to be an anniversary present in a way for the 10th anniversary yeah, like the 10th anniversary yeah the 10th anniversary of the affordable care act hold on pause and for one second 10th anniversary of the affordable care act look at all of the amazing work we've accomplished everybody please like congratulate yourselves for a second this has been a momentous decade of progress and innovation phil continue yeah i mean so <laughs> the the gift what were the gifts that were given at this party i don't know what you're supposed to get on the 10th anniversary is it like it's not silver or gold it's i forget it's it's uh, minor technical changes, minor technical fixes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah the minor um, technical fixes actually, anniversary. It's tin or aluminum, so it's quite appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh my God. this is a tin or aluminum uh, sort of piece of legislation for sure. Um, yeah, you so, don't get real healthcare until twenty five years, honey. Yeah. <laughs> so they moved this basically because uh, so then COVID happened and they essentially moved this they i guess it sounds like they held on to it to reintroduce for a vote or to like then introduce for a vote which is now passed and will absolutely you know die in the senate and not even make it to be vetoed by trump but uh pushed it through now essentially the week after the like big aca ruling 
mm-hmm. right? In the Supreme um, Court. As we talked about last week. Yeah, I think that was maybe last week's patron episode. So it's like, what, basically like a really shallow political move that even, I mean, it's so fucking, it's so wild and discordant that like, that they would pass a bill like this and not even sort of try to line up with like the Biden mm. strategy even, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I because mean, they does, left a few things on the table that Biden actually would have proposed, like the uh, public... Public sort of option. Qu- right. Quasi-public option or something like yeah. that. <laughs> it's really kind of amazing, actually. Well, I mean, so there's the the question that I think political reporters will be talking about on this is, okay, this is clearly... If, it, if it's dead on arrival in the Senate, it is de facto a messaging bill that is what you're doing and so then it has to be evaluated as such and so then the question is is this a good one and nope. i guess there are some people i've heard i don't agree with this there's some people who's like well you know a messaging bill it really doesn't matter what the content is because <laughs> all you're trying to say is you know we're different than uh donald trump it's what i would call the uh you know the diet uh coke zero version of like a messaging bill i don't think that that's i don't think that that's true because i think if you really want to do a good messaging bill you have to really distinguish you have it to have say a message and <laughs> tell people what exactly what what exactly uh the message is and i i think the if you look at public opinion on like the affordable care act it's not as if so if we were in the world where the affordable care act's polling among everyone was at like 75%. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. 80%. I would if, say that this if, would be an counterfactual if, if, here. If, yeah, this is counterfactual, right? If yeah. that were the case, I I would say this is an okay messaging bill. Okay. Um but approval of the affordable care act is still about 51% depending on how you pull it. <laughs> approval mm-hmm. for Medicare for all is higher than that by more than 10 points. Now, obviously, yeah. it depends on <laughs> how you word it, if you call it socialized medicine. Yeah, I've heard 63 to 69. It, it, there are some things where, to be honest, if you phrase it as like socialized medicine, okay, it falls to around where the ACA is now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hell yeah. So, I mean, now, whatever one makes of these things is not my place to say. I don't think about public opinion all that much. I think it's a it's it's a reflection rather than a an engine but you know we're in a world where it's not as if this the affordable character is this wildly popular thing what's wildly popular among in fact people of both parties is a lot of the sort of more egalitarian promises of the affordable care act, which were never Mm -hmm. fully fulfilled which is why Mm -hmm. i was on a radio show earlier this week and i had a caller saying that she was very glad that they were getting rid of Obamacare, but mm. uh, definitely believed that we needed to ensure that people would only pay, uh, you know, something, you know, each to each according to, to his ability, more or less. Oh and that we should gosh. definitely expand Badger Care uh, in Wisconsin. Um, so, I mean, the... So so what they have in here actually does matter because the question is whether or not it's registers to people at all as something that's concordant with what right. they want. And I frankly, I don't see it's very technical and it's uh, trying to abstract this into a sort of publicly digestible tidbit is hard because it's like a technical Mm -hmm. bill. This is the thing Mm -hmm. that I keep thinking about because like, um, I mean, and and 
to to think that essentially you're going to just allow especially like you know i don't know in an election year in a in a time when the primary as we uh have you know talked about for like this entire podcast basically you know one of the principal issues that was the most hotly debated the first like mm-hmm. a, a huge uh influencer on like public polling even because like even in exit polls it showed basically that a lot of people like who were voting thought that Biden supported Medicare for all, which like, <laughs> right. so, like real great. Job, Honestly, guys. that's, <laughs> that's like good. Lu- Lucy that's football a, shit right there. Yeah. The, the primary itself that we just went through was like, so focused on healthcare and that was before a global right. pandemic. Right. And now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and like, and they're the like, Trump Oh, administ- ACA is fine. Well, this is the thing like the, the Trump administration, uh, like literally last week, as we talked again, as we, you know, talked about our, our, I think our, on our Patreon episode, sent this letter recommending to strike down the ACA, right, to the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Um, and meanwhile, like, and it, it's consistent with all the messaging that they've had this entire time, not only through campaigning on it, but having, um, like, even, like, Seema Verma mm-hmm. testified in, like, I think the first time that she was brought in, one of the only, I think, two times that she's ever been brought in by the Oversight Committee, basically, uh, to speak about um, the mismanagement of C- of CMS basically mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. uh said that yeah we do recommend that you like take away the affordable care act um and there we have ideas in place that will like we'll, we we have ideas that will uh protect things that people uh really care about like pre-existing conditions with like no you know yeah. they don't have bill text they don't have any any uh like rule proposals they don't have like anything to show but they get to say well, we need some like we need something better. We want it to be like cheaper, et cetera. Um, but we want to still protect pre-existing conditions. But then, like on the other on the other hand, in Congress, like you have so basically, like what is this bill except to say essentially, okay, so the thing that one of the things that people really don't like about the ACA in general is that after a certain uh, cliff of income, suddenly mm-hmm. you uh, have like a huge rise in your premiums, which effectively like makes it so that if you're like just over that thing where you don't get like a tax benefit, right, then all of a sudden or like a subsidy, um, then you basically don't like that. Then it like, takes a disproportionate large insurance. amount. Right. And it takes a disproportionately large uh, like amount of your income, in, income out yeah. basically. And that's only on the fucking premium because then there's like then there are like. Right. Uh, and your, your deductible like and co-pays, et cetera, deductibles, and what yeah. it covers. But anyway, the but so like their big idea is what there. I mean, there are a couple of things in here, but the really big thing that if I can think of anything that they would try to sell to people on this is just that like it changes this. It tinkers with the sliding scale to make it so that there are some more subsidies or like make, you know, makes it so that it like pushes that cliff into a different uh, like place right. basically. No, and well, and, but I think the, to me, the to me the most telling thing about this messaging bill is what it says about Nancy Pelosi, kind of as like a leader and a politician, which is that she messages the way that she would want to be messaged to, that like a wealthy white woman from San Francisco who is a political donor would want to be messaged to, like she doesn't message to voters she doesn't message like to anybody but literally what a like you know an aging like boomer democrat from san francisco would want to be would like would like would like respond to 
you know, both in how tepid this is and in how technocratic it is. It's well, just, I mean, can I actually, I think it's worse than that though. Really? Um, mm-hmm. because so, so yeah, I, I do. Um, because I think what you're, so, um, I think the kind of messaging you're talking about is better encapsulated in somebody like Amy McGrath. Mm. Um, because if you look at her platform, say, or her uh, state public statements about health care, they are sort of a um, spitting image uh, copy pasta of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what does she say? Let's see if I can get the text up here from old Amy's website. Um, I firmly believe that the goal must be universal coverage for all Americans, but we need to be honest about Ooh. how to get there. A single payer system Ugh. would require a sweeping, such a sweeping overhaul of our healthcare system that it would throw our system into massive upheaval. Since we're not starting from scratch and we have to work with the system we have, I do not currently support such an approach. Uh, but then like Biden goes on to support, uh, you know, the something to the right of, say, Paul Starr of the American Prospect, uh, <laughs> public option, um, and uh, Medicare buy-in, and um, something that she can go on, like, because she's g- contesting the McConnell seat, um, you know, talk about prescription uh, drug costs. Now, that's not what this bill does. Right. This bill is... Even more, I mean, I would even contest the notion that it really works as a messaging bill. I sort of, I now reading it and and reading the descriptions of it, it reads more to me like someone has been sleeping and when they've been sleeping, they've been dreaming. And in the dream, (laughs) they have more people who are hypothetically what they think Susan Collins and Lamar Alexander might have been or were just hypothesized to be by MSNBC, which is people who mm-hmm. maybe cared in some, you know, scintilla of a way about fixing or tinkering with system because I don't know, maybe they get complaints from their constituents or something. Um, <laughs> what are those? But, but, but that, that's like in no way. Then you wake up from the dream. Uh, and H, HR 1425 has been left under your pillow. <laughs> by by whom? Ah, it's not clear ah, who it was. Like, the thing is, I can't I can't just do like a a classic sort of Marxist analysis. Like, oh, this is just the insurance industry's bill. Mm-hmm. Not even clear to me that this like is particularly good for them. It's just you know at some right. point it's like yeah. it's like they're playing uh like fantasy football with what they could have passed in 2010 or something yeah you know i mean like if i no, could go back they... if i could turn back time maybe these <laughs> tiny technocratic tweaks would actually change it and no one would be mad at me right now and i wouldn't have to deflect any answers about medicare so, for all anymore and everyone would shut up and leave me alone so is this <laughs> a, like the bill and ted's excellent adventure yeah, of, of the bills. aca yeah, of ACA yeah. oh my god this but it's is not the even, uh, this is the director's cut. Oh it's crazy God. that it's also not even. I mean, we've said this, but it's not even what they wanted to pass because what they wanted to right. pass had a fucking public option in it. This is literally which just would not what have, they've, which would not have fixed the bill, but still, yeah, no, but, but but I mean, but even so, if you if the point is to draw clear lines, right, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right, this exactly. is this is just what the bill or looked. Do this anything. is just what the bill looked like when they started, like and 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 sort of takes back everything that the that the administration has been able to like yeah wheedle you know sort of like uh needle away through just like rule changes i mean it's it's oh my god it is just yeah i guess that's the other i guess that's the other if i'm trying to be less hyperbolic 
why bother? Um, <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, I guess I could say that the things, the things that I could imagine you would message on out of this uh, would be the things that are like, here's what the Trump administration has done, you know, as their like assault on the Affordable Care Act and has made it harder to um, get all these things. Although, you know, it was plenty hard before. They just so that I did just sort of twist the knife a bit, but um, I guess I could imagine that if we're trying to be generous. <laughs> but welcome to our podcast. Yeah, I mean, like it's funny because I I think it's kind of the thing that struck me the funniest when I was reading some of the bill text is that like the, it does have all these hallmarks of like conversations that we had not just like months ago but years ago, which is like we need mm-hmm. to address the narrow network issue. You know, <laughs> we need to like really really focus on like regional stabilization within marketplaces like i think i think maybe phil you're right that this just they are asleep they're they're fucking asleep i because i don't know what constituency this benefits other than their own perpetuation of like this weird stasis power that they have right now where they like only maintain power through in action, you know, not to. I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow from the uh, our favorite uh, liberal wonks here and say like, <laughs> there's no point in talking about this because this is a fake bill. This is a fake news bill. <laughs> it's not. This is well uh, this is, is not going to happen. So why bother discussing it? Oh but my gosh. The, um, but I will say the the last thing that I will um, mention about this is we talked. I guess the most uh, granular detail we talked about in terms of like some of the changes that it makes are about like. Um, you know, slide like that, like sliding scale of subsidies and and things mm-hmm. like that. But to be a bit more explicit with one of the things that is just like endlessly funny to me that is included yeah. in this bill is um, so essentially it would it would create uh, about two hundred million dollars in annual federal grants um, between the years twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four. Um, for states to develop innovative solutions to increase enrollment in individual and small group coverage, which me yeah, uh, like, and it literally it lists here like states could use the funding to one explore ways to streamline their enrollment procedures, such as experimenting with auto enrollment. Two, invest <laughs> in technology to improve data collection and sharing. Three, oh, implement a state level individual fuckers. mandate. And or for collect or conduct a feasibility study to develop a plan to increase enrollment. So I smell money. We listen. We just have to start the consultancy, guys. Yeah, Yeah. this bill would be for us if we were only consultants. (laughs) Exactly. I'll take two hundred million dollars to tell them to just pass Medicare for all. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder how we can increase enrollment. I don't know. Maybe a universal program. Opt out. Yeah. Like there you go. Not even opt out. Not even I love, that, I love that they're suggesting studying how to get everybody enrolled as if it's well, difficult. You know, <laughs> well, like, it is difficult in the way that they set it up. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's one of the no, reasons I know. this bill like, sucks. Like, but it's like... <laughs> we have I mean, filled this like, ditch full of razor wire and piranhas. <laughs> right. you, we will now <laughs> conduct a feasibility study <laughs> to get across why, this. Why is nobody going to our healthcare store that's just on the other side of it? Right. See, we okay. should do an environmental impact report. Right. Oh, this, is, this is like, it's so simple. What about instead of, what about instead of enrollment? We focus on the fact that it's just a service. Like, let's just make medical records and places to go get fucking care. God damn it. <laughs> like, who cares how many people are enrolled if everyone can get health care? It doesn't matter how many subscribers you have if everyone has what they need. 
It's so ridiculous. And it's funny, actually, because, like, I do have that original rant of Matt Iglesias's um, from April 13th of 2019. I have the transcript saved in a note on my phone that you mentioned already. And he says, just step back a little bit from the details of that statement. The big thing that's going on here, right, is that this bill is fake news. There's a bill, right? The bill was rolled out. The bill had some co-sponsors. There were also some big obvious questions about the bill that happened when, like over a year ago, 2017, right? And since the time of that, the questions and the skeptics had about that bill had been organizing, you know, answered, right? Why do we listen to this man about anything? You see a bill, and yet there is no bill. He's just, <laughs> he's just... Uh. I guess the other, the other thing about this is um, on Tuesday... People in Oklahoma voted to expand Medicaid. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and this Good is the them. fifth such state that has done that. But the thing about it that's important is, so it passed, it was a squeaker. It was, what, 50, 50.4% or something like that was the vote. Right. Um, but all of the votes, that all of the states that have done this were states where there is very high Trump support, very high Republican uh, party registration, Oklahoma, Idaho, Utah, Nebraska and Maine. And if if Democrats are paying any kind of attention at all, they will look at that as a sort of hard test for what people are willing to do when uh, actual material benefits are on the table. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, it's not as if these are voters who would self-describe as liberal or, or anything like that. They're just this is a thing that people need. Um and Democrats aren't promising them that right now. No, no. just um, busy offering liability to nursing homes. Yeah. But I mean, actually, that might be a good um, sort of final topic to round out in the context mm-hmm. of everything we've been talking about with healthcare and sort of what everyone is doing. Um, one of the things that we've talked about a lot on this show is how it's like very hard to ever find anyone uh, willing to report on long term care. And one of the Maybe silver linings of this crisis has been that people understand how many people are institutionalized in the United States, actually, in a way that they, I think, the general public has not um, really cared to think about for very long. The coronavirus pandemic has, like, brought... uh, the issues with long-term services like into pretty harsh reality. And uh, whereas like a year ago, you could only find reporting on like the state of the market of investing in long-term care insurance. Now you're actually like finding reporting on, you know, how fucking awful the situation is in a lot of nursing facilities in the United States and how sort of directly responsible for the absolute horrific brutality of COVID, um, particularly on communities of color has been like a direct result of like the sort of system of institutionalized care that we have here in the U S. So why don't we go ahead and cover this thing that New York times put together where they aggregated all this data from uh, various nursing home populations because there isn't a lot of reporting on it um, in terms of like places where you can get oversight. So they, they reached out to a bunch of employees at nursing homes and people who were residents, former residents, former employees, and they've uh, found that, uh, about 11% of all U.S. cases basically are um, directly can be tied back to nursing homes. Which is staggering. I mean, the and this is something where these are not settings that are, you know, if you think about the places where it might be difficult to 
control community spread because there's not a, a, mm-hmm. so a lot of like monitoring and observation. Like ostensibly, these are places where there are should be uh, inspectors uh, where there are uh, or should be uh, regulations. But we have this infrastructure that, yeah, we sort of um, just keep telling ourselves that it's that it's fine. Um, and it's it's quite obviously not. I mean, I think the biggest indication of this was this report that came out from this uh, economist or uh, public health researcher, rather, at the University of Chicago, um, who just said, you know, even if you look at the way that we measure quality um, mm-hmm. in nursing homes, which is this this star rating, which is absurd, right. um, the there's really no difference between the one star and five star nursing homes uh, and the spread of COVID-19, mm-hmm. which sort of tells you that the places that were doing well in terms of quality we're really just one pandemic away from being, <laughs> as the New York Times put it in their in their point, they, they use the term "death pit," oh um, which is really, you know, now a who's being hyperbolic? Say, NY Times, right? <laughs> but but I mean, you know, what, you want to just pretend that this is not uh, as bad as it is? Apparently, you know, it's something we're fairly comfortable doing, but. Um, but yeah, it is. It really is that bad. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and that and that um, you're talking about the Tamara Konetska mm-hmm. thing, the testimony yeah. for the yeah, um, and, and within that, uh, you know, it also points out something which is really striking, which would make sense in kind of like we were talking about with the uh, the study on jails um, mm-hmm. and specifically on Cook County Jail that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, you know, it makes sense to sort of like further reinforce the like intersection of you know basically systemic racism and our like horrible like health finance and public health uh system mm-hmm. in in the United States um because in that same report it, it notes that nursing homes that have the highest percentage of non-white residents are almost are more than twice as likely to have uh covid-19 cases and deaths uh as those with a lower share of mm-hmm. non-white residents. And so this is like, it's, a, it's another one of these things where basically the, like, you know, all, all of this sort of, all of these factors that like factors within like systemic racism that like mm-hmm. exacerbate like health and economic, uh, how to put it. Like disparities. Yeah, the reason, the reason that the pandemic is bad is not because we, we've been specially cursed. Um, if you want to see that way, but because of the institutions that we have and the, our practices, which are yeah, systemically racist that allow us to experience it in ways that are far worse. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I'd say to like credit to uh, a su- surprise credit to uh, Forbes, yeah. <laughs> which I like, which I put, put one um, source in here for us, which is literally um, so Forbes published something which is really way outside of its usual purview i would say saying like we are having a national conversation about race and policing why aren't we having one about race and long-term care now yeah so yeah credit like credit to forbes for like even like publishing an opinion piece for instance that points this out it's interesting though how like this same it's interesting to see that the same data is wheeled as like this the this argument um the way that it gets inserted into a publication like forbes uh Mm -hmm. is kind of really interesting because that star rating thing that you mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. phil um it's almost couched uh in this person's argument not only in this forbes article but in i was like on this guy's personal blog um before because <laughs> of course like a forbes writer has like yeah a personal bar- blog where he 
spills all of his i assume like white wine thoughts basically <laughs> but the um let him live they acknowledge he acknowledges essentially that like you know systemic racism is an issue and it is exacerbating conditions in uh nursing facilities and, and in long-term care in general but then basically also says that like because you see this across star ratings and across both publicly run and privately owned mm-hmm. uh nursing facilities and across like ones that are deemed good and ones that are deemed bad or whatever it reminds me of uh, something we talked about um like the last time we talked about nursing homes actually because like the he he basically tries to use that data point to say that there aren't like disparities or problems within like between like public or privately run ones which to me sounds like an argument for further privatization essentially Uh, yeah but uh but then when you really like think about that what that is is a that is like a systemically damning statement for mm-hmm. the for the industry <laughs> such as it is as a whole, right? I right. mean, that basically, because to me that reads actually as the opposite of what he's saying, which is that like, to me it raises like all nursing homes are really bad, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Right, right. And it's interesting because like it's, um, I think one of the things that we've, I've seen a lot from people in response to, um, we're just like sort of commentators or whatever, is they're like, we need to regulate you know, we got to go in and like bring in oversight and really like what it's, uh, what is fantastic about particularly the testimony that, um, Dr. Knetza gave to the, um, I think it's what the like committee on aging Special in Congress. Committee on aging, yeah, yeah. Is that, is that essentially like actually one of the biggest problems is like how workers are treated in this industry, right? Because these jobs are, um, basically like, these companies, be they private or public nursing care companies like long-term care centers of America, they run everything on a fucking shoestring, right? And these are very low paid positions with like no benefits. They are making no money and you basically understaff these facilities and then you pay people so little that they have to work at multiple. And that Mm -hmm, is exactly where the uh, sort of eye of the COVID storm has like developed within these like institutional facilities is that you have people who are due to like the uh, labor conditions of the industry and the way that the industry itself like immiserates the people who like keep it running. We are like Mm -hmm. exacerbating the problem. Meanwhile, those same people who are underpaying the employees who are getting sick and dying, the residents are getting sick and dying. Like, uh, they're getting uh, liability coverage from states like New York, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and they're shielded yeah. from responsibility, you know. Uh, well, I think there's this bias in in you know, okay, we have data on the entire country and things vary from place to place, and obviously there's uh, an impulse to try to find out where the worst places are. But to me, the story is how bad we are as a whole. And if you want any kind of indication about how little we give a shit about people who are in nursing homes. The committee to which uh, this uh, professor uh, Kaneska testified doesn't even have legislative authority. They don't even have legislative jurisdiction. They can't take this piece of uh, testimony and make it into a bill. It's just a purely, you know, uh, committee that's that's oriented around uh, taking testimony and issuing strongly worded reports. Well, and (laughs) you've seen this like for decades, this industry has been going this way and it's uh, tack is actually like a marginal improvement from where it was, let's say in the seventies. If you like look at some of the way those institutions were run, particularly there's a very 
trigger warning um, incident of a facility in Staten Island that's pretty famous um, where like which I guess was like part of what inspired Bobby Kennedy to like start his war on poverty or some or like anti-institutionalization. But, you know, so we've got these like this um, decades long, basically consolidation of the industry, underfunding of the industry. I think it's like two thirds of people in most institutions are Medicaid patients. And oftentimes the reimbursement rates for these facilities don't even cover the cost of care. So then you have this like this massive uh, cancer, right, that is a completely inefficient um, industry (laughs) that is cruel and operating uh, now under the conditions of a pandemic, actively exacerbating a, a global health crisis, right? And our response is to turn and shield the profit margins and the investors. That is mm-hmm. that was our regulatory decision in the face of this crisis. We like people know this is a problem. Public health officials know this is a problem. This is not Andrew Cuomo doesn't not know that nursing homes are deadly, right? right. Mm-hmm. He's the governor. They know. They know, and they're. To blame. I think that's yeah. the that's the uh, the real takeaway from this. They know they're to blame, and uh, this is what we're doing is killing people, and mm-hmm. it's really not more complicated than that. Yeah, um, kind of a dark place to wrap. Well, I mean, it's not dark. It's honest, right? It's true. important, like. Because we so often like in these situations, because, you know, we just like take people and we put them somewhere where we don't want to look at them, whether it's like jail or like medical jail or like a long term care facility, medical you know, jail. Yeah. medical jail, other, other <laughs> medical jail, old people, medical jail, crazy people, medical jail, like right. whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like there is yeah. not there's not a huge difference between a hospital and a jail. Right. Um, like it's just like we consider <laughs> okay, to be one, one to be humane <laughs> because of the aesthetics right um, um sue no, me true. whatever it is uh, it, it's um yeah michelle foucault will sue you from beyond the grave for uh yeah for, for, <laughs> yes i will see you and send you you to took jail. my tumblr post without attribution um tumblr <laughs> i think um i have i have maybe something i know this is from a couple of days ago but it's just starting to make the rounds uh like immediately right now um thought maybe there is there's one thing maybe we could i could bring up to uh lighten the mood a little bit as we wrap out oh already so um you spoil us better be about jizz lane well i don't know if you guys oh yeah let's not not even go there no no, i know i'm not gonna um so you know we have a lot of fun at at the expense of outlets like let's say a vox what have you (laughs) Um, but the every, boxes of the world. you know, every Vox starts somewhere. And, uh-huh. um, do you guys, do you guys remember Yasha Monk? How could I forget? Uh-huh. Yasha Monk. How, how literally how could forget? one forget? Yeah. Yasha Monk, the, uh, noted shithead who, you know, wrote about <laughs> the, uh, like crumbling illiberal democracy, uh, idea, how et demo- cetera. How democracies die, I believe. No, no, it's a, not not him. But oh wait, no, uh, sorry. What was every, everyone else is how democracies die? He just like he he had a really big bump immediately after uh, Trump's election. Um, after so he like he, he 
like wrote this whole thing um, that was, you know, about how about our, our descent into illiberal democracy, um, you know, mm. basically just an, a, a way <laughs> which is him getting owned online. Yeah, exactly. Me getting owned online is a liberal democracy. Exactly. Well, anywhere, any world that's mean to Yasha is a, is a problem. Clearly. Yeah. Well, um, in order to, I guess, let's say safeguard himself from this, um, he has founded his own um uh, new journal which uh, it seems like which seems like is on a substack actually um so maybe he's coming for nathan's money but um it's called persuasion um and uh Ew. hamburger his his uh it's like a restaurant called hamburger um and the idea i guess is to uh you know basically bring together a community of uh, thinkers, writers, and activists to uh, imagine how we can create a freer world. Um, do you know? Do you want to know who's signed on with him on this pledge? Mm-mm. He has a list of founding... Uh, he has... Let's see. Uh, he has a list of... David from. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so he's the founder and editor-in-chief, and then his founding team includes... Or his board of advisors... Thomas Chatterton Williams, David. Oh my God, David French. David. It was going on. Francis Fukuyama. My original. And uh, what else? There, I don't know. Like Jonathan, Jonathan Haidt. Ooh, yeah. the coddling of the American. It's lot. just. Um, <laughs> Is this like the the new cast of the Avengers or something? Yeah, now? basically. This is so. This is going to be the. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll, well keep we're gonna keep tabs on this. I'm sure that yeah. this is gonna I can't be wait, can't wait to engage in persuasion. A veritable quillet of ideas, I think. Yeah, I'm, here. I'm stoked. Um, this is gonna be great for us. Um <laughs> oh just saying. God. Oh my I, god. I for one hail this, thank them, and uh cannot wait to let them create tons of content for us. Yeah. <laughs> All the world's a jail and this is mine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note. Yeah, I was going to say, with that, I think uh, I think that about does it for today. Thank you for listening. Again, you can support the show at patreon.com slash deafpanelpod. And patrons, uh, check your uh, emails and our posts for a merch code or, I don't know, send us a DM or whatever. Um, but yeah, support the show. We couldn't do it without you. We do two episodes a week. So if you want access to the uh, Monday bonus episode, then you got to become a patron. Every week. Every week. Essential pick. Yep. yep. And like share the link with your friends if they can't afford it. If friends can, pressure them, peer pressure yeah. them to support the show mm-hmm. because we'd appreciate it. Yeah. Um and uh yeah, I think I think, you know, it's I can't wait to sort of see how uh some of this budget stuff plays out over the next couple of weeks. So it'll be it'll mm-hmm. be a fun month of July. Are you guys ready? Do you have like fun fourth of July plans? You're gonna wear your bucket hat, Vince? I don't know. Oh yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> gonna wear my bucket hat. I definitely still have to pay my taxes. That's my 4th of July. Now that we all know your exciting plans for the weekend. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think with that, uh, I think that about does it for today. Yep. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Bye. 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 Bye.